today on Ag News Daily. You know, what consumers want today is are going to be pretty different than what they've wanted in the past. It's not just about price and forecast. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Pearson here on this Friday, August 30th, heading into a three-day Labor Day weekend here in the States. I'm joined, of course, by intern Madison Honkamp. And Madison, what are your big plans for the weekend? Well, Mike, the first Iowa State football game is this weekend, so that's pretty much all I'll be doing. We're playing you and I. you and I, right? Yes. Yeah. And my parents are coming up for the game, so I'll get to see them. Now, the really exciting thing, Madison, is, of course, sports betting is now legal in the state of Iowa. But, oh, you're not 21 yet, are you? No, I'm 19. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so then never mind. Forget that. You'll have to find a bookie and, you know, it's just the whole thing. Yeah. I've heard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, so that'll be fun. <laughs> so you're, you're leaning towards Iowa State. You're hoping for a big ISU Cyclone victory over the UNI Panthers. I am in the same boat. And we shall see how it goes tomorrow. Yes, we definitely will. I, I'm i really hoping we win. <laughs> and I really hope it doesn't get rained out, because last year our first game got rained out. So then the second game was Iowa-Iowa State, and we didn't get that kind of first game practice, really. And then we just kind of died. <laughs> right. And for listeners outside the state of Iowa, Iowa-Iowa State is our Ohio State-Michigan. It is yeah. our... Well, I don't, know, I don't know the other big rivalries, but it, it's a big rivalry in the state of Iowa. Yeah. And Iowa State fans have, have suffered long enough. Yes, we have. It's been a while Throughout since history. we've won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we, we'd love to see a win. But, yes. you know, Madison, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about sports and talking about the Cyclones, but we probably shouldn't. We probably have to focus a little bit on the news. We know our listeners are out. They're getting work done. They're hoping to maybe take a day off this weekend. So let's jive, let's dive into it. What news is on your plate today? Well, Mike, I saw today reported by AgriPulse that the Trump administration's trade payments for U.S. farmers has actually raised the net income, and it is expected to increase for the third straight year. And the USDA's Economic Research Service did forecast net farm income at $88 billion for 2019, and that's actually an increase of $4 billion, or 4.8% from just 2018. But how much of that was MFP money? Like most of it? Yeah. For the increase? Yes. Yeah. Most of it is MFP prevent plant. It's not like gotcha. what you get from, yeah, from like crops or livestock or anything. Right. It's government program yes. money, which, hey, is just as green as the regular stuff. And it pays back the banker just as well. Yes, it does. But I thought that was interesting that farming comes like we've really kind of had a struggle lots of struggles these past couple of years, but it's actually increasing for the third straight year. But again, because of those government programs, not because of just rising prices. All right. Well, hey, money's money. Very true. But what have you been seeing today, Mike? Well, you know, it's actually interesting. It is a very similar story. Money is money. If you're involved in agriculture, you're trying to find a way to make money any way you can. And we've made a lot of fun of the fake meat products that are out on the market. But companies in the space of agriculture recognize, hey, there's a niche here. There's probably the opportunity to make some profit. And so Cargill has now invested an additional $75 million in a company called Purus or Purus. 
I suppose, P-U-R-I-S. They're the largest North American producer of pea protein, P-E-A, just so our listeners are on the same page. Um, basically, they're looking to double their pea protein production in a facility. It's about 200,000 square feet in Dawson, Minnesota, and they're saying this is going to let them keep up for demand for pea proteins, which, of course, we're seeing used in a lot of the uh, the, the imitation meat products, uh, starches and fibers, and Puris is vertically integrated. So this is, they call it the future of food, which I thought was interesting, but uh, Puris is very excited about this investment, and Cargill says this provides significant support to the local economy. It's going to create 90 new jobs there in Dawson, and as the demand increases for plant-based proteins, we want to make sure Cargill can deliver on that demand with, this is their quote, great tasting, sustainable, and label-friendly pea protein for customers in North America and around the world. So we're going to continue to see investments flow into this alternative meat space as long as it continues to be a hot topic, as long as Beyond Meat is soaring on the uh, stock market, as long as KFC is introducing whatever, it's frickin', as we've decided it should be called, it's fake chicken, Um, we're going to see these investments take place. Yeah, I... Honestly, like honestly, as much as we kind of like rat on fake meat, it, it's still helping the economy and helping those like vegetable farmers. And so, I don't absolutely. Know. At the end of the day, pea growers are still involved yeah, in agriculture. Exactly. So, and it's a great way for some producers to diversify their operations. Yeah. It just Definitely. stings, considering <laughs> that both Delaney and myself, and I know you have connections to the livestock industry, mm-hmm. those of us that are tied into real meat production, it just kind of burns at our soul to see these fake meats coming on the market. But yeah. it is a good thing to add more diversity to the world of agriculture, that's for sure. Yes, definitely. You just got to look on the bright side of it. <laughs> exactly. But I don't like, I want to complain about things, Madison. <laughs> Well, Mike, speaking of livestock, China actually made a small purchase of U.S. pork this week, um, obviously wanting to get it in before those additional tariffs um, start on September 1st. That is on Sunday, actually. Mm -hmm. But they bought 1,861 metric tons of U.S. pork this past week. And that's actually up 220 metric tons from a week earlier. Yeah, they are buying the pork, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Not huge amounts, but they're no. still getting it bought. They're definitely, yeah, just little purchases to kind of keep them going, I guess. Exactly. So it's interesting you bring that up today because China, earlier today, their state television, which of course is all sponsored by the government, this is all government flax coming on and talking about what the government sees, they said that the trade dispute with the U.S. will not affect China's pork supply. And they pointed out that the U.S. Uh, US pork imports into China account for less than 0.2% of Chinese output. Um, this fellow, uh, Jin Goshang of the Veterinarian Bureau of the Ministry of Agriculture said that um, the dispute with the U.S. is not going to have any impact on pork supply and pork prices. China is going to work to release meat from its stockpiles. They're going to release frozen pork, beef, and mutton from the state reserves. And they're saying that pork imports from other countries, including the U.S., but to a smaller extent perhaps, 
um, are going to rise 36% from the same period a year ago. And this is the quote from Vice Premier, Vice Premier Hu Chunhua said, quote, we should ensure pork supply by all means and strictly rein in market speculation, actively boost production of alternative meat proteins, and increase frozen pork reserves. He said the thing, the interesting thing is the rein in market speculation. We've been talking here in the office at Zaner the past couple of days about just the absolutely parabolic growth in pork prices in China. For the retail consumer, pork prices have been exploding at the grocery store. And now it appears that the Chinese government is going to start cracking down on that. And they want to keep pork at least relatively affordable, given the fact that according to the Chinese government, and we don't know how accurate these numbers are, uh, China's pig herd shrank by 32.2% in the month of July from the same period a year ago. So, I mean, that's how quick African swine fever is uh, decimating the herd over there. Yeah, it definitely shows, but I don't know. I thought I read somewhere that it was maybe 50%. I don't know. That's what the, some private analysts yeah. have said. Uh, veterinarians and folks who work in the animal health space have said based on site visits, based on medications shipped out, based on you know all the other things they mm -hmm. look at, they really feel the number is much closer to 50% of China's breeding stock. Yeah. Probably. And that was a month ago. So who mm -hmm. knows what it's up to now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it's good that they're looking for other ways to bring pork into the country rather than just saying, well, I guess I don't know what to do now. <laughs> right. Suck it. Eat some chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I tell you, Madison, do you have any other news stories that are jumping out at you today? I just have one last um, little report. So... I saw today that Val Valent is ha creating a new insecticide and her herbicide in hopefully to come out in 2020. Farmers are still shopping for options to address the corn root worm, root worm, and Valent is using a new soil applied insecticide, um, Ampex EZ, and it is pending EPA approval. But we can see that coming out. Hopefully in 2020, depending if the EPA gets that fixed or gets that approved. And it actually moves through the plant's xylem to control corn rootworm, white grub, seed corn maggot, wireworms, and black cutworm. Oh, wow. So it would mm -hmm. be a, a pretty multi spectrum uh, insecticide and herbicide. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. You betcha. So, well, we'll see if the EPA can get it done mm -hmm. in uh, in time to get that out there for the uh, 2020 crop year. Yeah, let's hope. Exactly. I want to bring it back to China and trade just one final time before we jump into the markets. We did have a report from China's foreign ministry earlier today that said that despite the fact we are less than 48 hours before additional U.S. tariffs are kicking in on $125 billion worth of Chinese goods, the Chinese and U.S. trade negotiating teams are maintaining effective communication. Now, that doesn't mean it's positive communication, but it means at least they're talking to one another, which I think is uh, is cause to celebrate. Um, so, yeah, it's not necessarily great news, but it's not bad news out of the uh, the China trade war front, which I think is is worth celebrating. Yeah, definitely. If there's, I mean, I think if the U.S. and China are talking. They're on speaking terms, then we're probably in a good spot. <laughs> Absolutely.
Well, I tell you what, Madison Honkamp, if you are out of news and I'm out of news, should we dive into the market? Well, actually, okay, so I completely forgot about this, but today I just have one last thing. To mm-hmm. Somebody, one of our followers, sent us some pictures from Northwest Missouri, It's and we posted the pictures on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ag News Daily, and it was from Rockport, just outside Rockport, Missouri, and it was 650,000 bushel of rotting, flood-soaked soybeans spontaneously combusted during a period of high heat, and it's been burning for almost two months now. Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember seeing that fire on Twitter. It must have been two months ago when it combusted. Mm -hmm. I'd kind of forgotten about it. It's still burning. It is still burning, and it is absolutely devastating, and I just wanted to kind of send out some happy thoughts for the people of Missouri. Oh, man. It's absolutely devastating, and that smell, Mm Madison, would have to be horrible. Yeah, I would not want to be anywhere. Rotting soybeans are bad enough. But then you add Can't imagine what they're like when you light them on fire. Right? I know. But I just wanted Ugh. to send out some happy thoughts for the people of Northwest Missouri and everybody affected by the floods that are still having a whole bunch of different issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Folks, remember, even though we don't think about it every day and we don't talk about the floods every day, we know folks are still impacted. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're Definitely. still very much in our thoughts. Well, let's see. Speaking of in our thoughts today, wheat growers need to be in our thoughts. Wheat was down big. But Madison, before we dive into that, should we just talk about all the rest of the markets, too? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks. And our our markets today were mixed. We saw corn and wheat down. Soybeans up in the middle of the day ended up just not too far off their open. But let's see how we closed out for the week. Starting in the corn market, the September corn contract was down one and three quarter cents at 358 even. December was down one and a half to wrap the day at 369 and three quarters. Looking at soybeans, September contract was up three quarters of a cent at 8.57 even. November up a half a penny to close the day at 8.69 even. And in wheat, Chicago contract, as I mentioned, down big on the day. September contract was down 18 and a half cents today at eight. Excuse me, 4.51 and a quarter. December was down 10 and a quarter, closed the day at uh, 4.62 and a half. Jumping over to the world of livestock. Could not find, uh, could not seem to catch a bid earlier today. The October live cattle contract was down 87.5 cents at 98.92.50. December down 57.5, finished the day at 103.67.50. December did touch on a new contract low earlier today, so maybe this is opening up the potential for some upside as we get into next week. Folks, we'll see when we get back from Labor Day. Grill those meats. In feeder cattle, September contract was down a dollar even at one thirty two forty. The October down a dollar seventeen fifty to finish at one thirty eighty. And in lean hogs, that October contract dropped a dollar thirty seven fifty at sixty three fifty two fifty. December down two dollars twenty seven and a half cents. Closed the day at sixty three. Thirty-seven fifty. Jumping over to the world of dairy to take a look at the Class Three milk contracts. The September contract was up six cents, finished the day at seventeen sixty-two, with October off a penny, finishing the day at seventeen sixty-three. Without further ado, Madison Honkamp, should we kick it over to our interview for the day? Let's do it, Mike. Well, I am joined today all the way across on the other side of the world by Sarah Nolet, who is a who's the founder and CEO of Agthentic. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me today. 
thank you, Delaney, for having me. So, Sarah, you're over there in Australia. You're working on some ag projects over there, which we'll get to here in just a little bit. But you're not originally from Australia. Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey getting overseas. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have an Australian accent for everyone, but I'll probably <laughs> say one or two words that maybe sound a bit funny to American ears. Um, so, yeah, I'm from California originally. I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, I ended up heading out east to study computer science and human factors engineering on the east coast of Boston. Um, spent a few years working in the defense industry and then ended up um, what on what Australians call a gap year. Um, and I don't think Americans really have a term for it, um, but I ended up living in South America for almost a year on a number of different farms and um, was hooked on agriculture and have spent um, the next, I guess, almost eight or so years um, working my way in, into the ag tech space, initially back in Boston um, with some consulting and research projects um, everywhere from Iowa to India and did a master's at, at MIT where I spent most of that time figuring out everything I could about agriculture and, and ag tech. Uh, and then about three and a half years ago, we moved to Australia um, where I founded Agventic and has been working in the ag and ag tech space here since then. Wow, that is really fascinating to think that you came from Silicon Valley. So you already have, you know, maybe a little bit different mindset with growing up there in that tech space and then deciding to work in agriculture technology. That's fascinating. Yes, it's been interesting to reflect back on how much of where I grew up has had an influence on what I do now. Both of my parents were working in the semiconductor industry and both have started businesses Dad was a, um, a tech entrepreneur, really, and when I've been asked now, like, what made me start a couple businesses, and I just sort of thought it was normal, um, but it's because it was normal in, in kind of where I grew up, so that's definitely um, come full circle and, and had an influence on um, what I've been up to more recently. Well, tell us a little bit more about that, Sarah. What have you been up to with Agfentic? What is the purpose of the business, and how did you get it started? Yeah, so... The, all those things are, are a similar answer. Um, I realized that we were seeing a bunch of uh, innovation and capital and uh, people wanting to come into agriculture and build technology products. But one of the challenges was there was a bit too much kind of focus on the technology and too much push of that technology into the industry rather than pull from the users in the industry um, because the technology just wasn't solving real problems. Too much focus on the flashy widget and not enough on the users and their workflow and their actual needs. And that was really frustrating um, because I did see the potential of the technology and entrepreneurs and new perspectives coming into agriculture. But if it doesn't solve problems and add value, then we're just going to create a big pipe bubble that's going to burst and everyone's going to be unhappy. And so that was really the problem I wanted to solve, thinking about you know how Silicon Valley has been able to churn out really good companies and how places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where I was living, have been able to create really good companies. What does it mean for agriculture? Is it the same kind of system that will create companies in, in ag, or do we need to involve more users or be in the Midwest or wherever the, the farmers are? Uh, what does that actually look like? And so that was the question I was thinking about. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on venture capital and corporate venture capital in agriculture and ag tech, which was an amazing experience to interview a number of the investors um, at big ag corporates as well as in the venture capital firms. And it just kind of reaffirmed this challenge that there wasn't enough good companies being created that were really solving um, deep industry problems. 
And so I was not sure how to solve that problem. It's a big one. Um, we moved to Australia pretty unexpectedly, actually. I think we got the, my partner, David, got the offer in something like September and we moved in December. So it was pretty quick. Um, and we'd never been to Australia at all, um, but we moved here. Uh, I think the real thing was he's from Boston and that's where we're living. I'm from California and we couldn't decide which of the, those two places to live in. So instead we picked Australia um, <laughs> and that's, that's where we ended up. Um, and yeah, the, the same problem um, around that kind of technology push existed in Australia too. And Australia is a, a massive um, global player in agriculture, but was thinking about how to Australia be good in, in how can Australia be good in, in ag tech um, and have a presence in this innovation space. And that's exactly what I had been studying, researching, thinking about. And so um, picked up a couple clients and that led to, to forming AgFintech. And so we really helped to solve that problem, working with growers and producers, working with industry bodies around kind of where there's market failure in this technology development space, working with research organizations around getting to know their customers and commercializing products, working with investors who want to be investing in this space but don't understand it, um, and working with both large and small companies, so corporate agribusinesses as well as startups around um, how do they work with each other, because it's really hard for big companies and small companies to work together, um, as well as how do they make sure that their innovation processes are, are solving real problems. Um, so that's what we've been doing for the last um, sort of three and a half or four years here, and we've kind of spun out a couple um, programs and projects off of that, um, that Agfintech itself wasn't kind of capable of solving, um, but that we needed, um, we wanted to see solved in the industry. So mm -hmm. one of those is um, a, a company called Farmers to Founders, uh, which is a program for primary producers around technology adoption, but also technology creation. Uh, and then another is Tenacious Ventures, which is our venture capital firm that we are nearly finished um, raising and, and very soon here we'll start investing um, that will actually invest in some of these startups um, rather than just kind of help them um, as a consultant or advisor. We want to be able to actually give them capital um, as well as support. Well, and not only that, it looks like you guys really focus not only on agriculture, but your website, agthentic.com, is very focused on our food system. And we keep hearing this daunting statistic, if you will, that farmers have to feed the world by 2050 and we're going to have this huge population. What role are you guys playing in, in that relationship with growers and the agriculture networks and value chains as you look at it from a technology standpoint? Yeah, I mean, technology is going to be absolutely critical in, in helping farmers to, to do that, to um, feed the growing population, but I guess also meet the needs because, you know, what consumers want today is already pretty different than what they've wanted in the past. It's not just about price and afford, um, price and taste and, and quality anymore. Those are still important, but it's also about you know, ethics and sustainability and, and kind of the new um, factors that consumers are considering, and that's putting pressure on producers. And so um, we can push back on consumers or be frustrated about these trends. But what we see is that technology creates an opportunity to kind of break the trade-off between um, what used to be niche, premium, small scale versus kind of large scale, commodity, efficient, uh, sustainable production. And technology can help find a middle ground where we can be efficient and large scale, but also um, meet the needs of, of these consumers and provide transparency and, and um, the quality and, and 
uh, characteristics that they are, are increasingly demanding. So that's really exciting all along the, the supply chain, whether that's at the farm um, level, behind the farm gate, or all along the supply chain. And Sarah, just because I'm curious, and I think a lot of our listeners will be too, who maybe haven't been to Australia, tell us a little bit about the agricultural system there. And then what are consumers in Australia demanding? Do you see them mirroring, you know, organic and conventional sustainable products that producer or that consumers in the U.S. are demanding? Yeah, um, Australia is great. I live on the beach. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, um, from an ag perspective where I do spend a lot of time in, in rural and regional Australia, I just got back last night, actually. Um, agriculture here is, is fascinating. It's, you know, there's not much corn and soy that's produced, so pretty different kinds of farming systems. It also has the highest level of climate variability in the world. So the farmers here have faced some pretty um, significant challenges um, over the last you know, 100 plus years, um, which has you know, severe droughts um, and, and weather events, flooding um, and all different kinds of you know, heat conditions, et cetera. Um, so that's been really interesting from a research perspective. The agricultural research here is, is ranked um, incredibly highly in the world. Um, and then the Australian agriculture industry is the second least subsidized. So following New Zealand, it's the secondly subsidized. Um, and yet we produce a number of different crops, like pretty much anything um, can grow here somewhere because Australia is the size of the U.S. It's actually massive, despite only having about 25 million people. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting space for agriculture for all those reasons. Um, consumers here, I would say, are very similar to American consumers. Actually, a lot of the big food companies um, like, you know, McDonald's and things like that do a lot of user testing here um, because it's a small market where they can run experiments, but the consumers are somewhat similar to uh, consumers in larger markets like the U.S. What's slightly different is um, trends are maybe a little bit slower here. Um, It's interesting things like um, gluten-free or acai protein bowls or things like that that have been around in um, Silicon Valley and, and Boston for many years were sort of just getting popular when I came to Australia almost four years ago. So I would say there's a slight delay. But interestingly, I mean, Australia um, it ranks third in the world for the fastest growing vegan population. And yet Australians are real meat consumers. There's a real history and um, cultural association around farming and um, like Aussie beefs and lamb. Um, so there's this interesting kind of challenge nowadays where there's the environmental consciousness around um, meat consumption and yet a lot of cultural um, energy around uh, meat production as well. And so that's created some interesting tensions and, and opportunities as, as well. That is that is fascinating to hear I guess bringing it back to the tech standpoint, Sarah, what do you see here over the next couple of years as you guys continue to invest and work with ag company ag companies? What do you see that's hot that's coming down the pipeline? Yeah, um, I, I wish that I could predict which ones will do <laughs> which ones will do well and which ones won't. That's a little bit my job, but also a scary one. So some of the areas were really excited about. Um, One is the kind of carbon farming space, and this is a new interest, so I'm definitely not an expert here, Um, but I've been implementing and and working with various carbon farming schemes for a while, Um, but there's increasingly um, excitement about that, but skepticism that we've just been paying for things that maybe haven't actually had any kind of 
actual ecosystem benefits. So I'm really interested in the ability for technology, whether it's satellites or um, cameras or anything else, to be able to actually validate that the practices we want to reward are being done, but without costing the farmer um, so much money or time or whatever to make it uh, actually not viable at all. So I'm hoping that there's technologies that can help really reward farmers for practices that in many cases they're doing anyways, but that consumers now want to see um, and need from an environmental standpoint. So that's one area. Um, another that we're um, looking at quite deeply is around um, grain quality testing and, and soil testing in kind of new ways. So there's a couple companies that have um, developed either small devices um, or using existing devices, but combined with some pretty advanced software to do um, like in-field testing. Uh, instead of having to take things to a lab, you can use algorithms um, stored in the cloud to do things like grain quality analysis or soil sampling or testing um, and have kind of real-time results on things that otherwise might take um, a while to get results back. So that has a big implication on decision-making, whether that's around, you know, input application or harvesting logistics, whatever whatever it might be. Um, so that's another one we're looking at. Um, and then all the way through to, um, you know, insect farming for waste management, one of the companies we've worked with for a long time and, and really like is a company called GoTerra. Um, they have a um, what's called modular infrastructure for biological services. So basically, it's a maggot robot. Um, so it's a huh. giant, um, well, not giant. It's a shipping container that's fully automated, like an indoor farm would be, um, but to manage insects, so control temperature and humidity. And whereas many of the insect companies have been um, kind of this consumer thing, right, producing maybe livestock feed or food, but at pretty small scale. This is actually a waste management solution because um, the waste dynamics are pretty different here. Um, but it's a you can um, put about five tons per day into one of these shipping containers and the insects consume it. And so you have a natural solution hmm. to whether it's effluent or um, spent hens or post-consumer food waste or, you know, um, you know, stone fruit, whatever it might be, um, you actually have a solution that can manage at scale, but um, without putting things in landfill or having to transport them because it can be on site. Um, so that's a really cool one. And the last one I'll say is, is the autonomy um, space. So whether that's um, smaller scale um, kind of uh, automations to help pickers in horticulture or robots like swarm farm robotics that are um, creating almost kind of industrial equipment, but that's autonomous um, for uh, broad acre, you know, grains and cereals. Um, so some really kind of diverse areas that we're really fortunate to, to get to look at one day. I might be looking at a, um, you know, something in horticulture in the supply chain and the next day, you know, pretty deep on cereals and, and, you know, sensors and robots. Um, so it's, it's a really, really fun uh, job because the world is changing really fast with all these different companies. Absolutely. It's a really exciting time in agriculture right now. Sarah, before I let you go, if folks would like to check out some of the work or blogs and podcasts, whatnot, that we didn't even get to touch on, uh, where should they go to find some of those resources? Sure. So um, you can find everything at agcentic.com. That's the word authentic with a G instead of a U. Um, and if you want to probably hear what we're thinking about most recently, our podcast is the best way to do that. So that's at agtech. So what? Uh, and yeah, I won't give too many resources. Those are probably the, the most interesting too. Perfect. Sarah, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Delaney. Really appreciate it and love your work. 
All right. Well, great conversation there. Now let's just, Madison, remind listeners how they can catch up on some of the other great conversations that have come through in the world of Ag News Daily. Well, Mike, listeners can always find us at our at our website at globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. But they can also find lots of other podcast articles, videos uh, about ag in different, a whole bunch of different aspects of the industry. But if they want to talk to us online, they can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ag News Daily and at Global Ag Network. Fantastic. Thanks for getting that Instagram up and running. Listeners, we want to see your pictures. Be sure to look us up. With that, Madison, should we let the folks go have a fantastic weekend? Let's do it, Mike. Thank you.